call it Shambhala. Isn't it miraculous that out of all of the stars in the sky, they chose a dying star to represent their afterworld? No. <laughs> Hi there, this is Luke. On today's episode, we cover practical effects, ambience for story, and meaning in Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain. Welcome to Notes from the Silver Screen. And we operate a little business here that simulates for our clientele, well, the, the experience of... Of, of, of being you, actually. The blood of many an elf, ogre, and goblin was spilled in their war with man. Of course. Although I've dedicated my life to God and goodness, I secretly love throwing oranges at our priest. It's not, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. They, they never really loved me. They always loved him more. They were leaving me behind. Tell me you understand. Tell me you understand. Home ain't a place. It's a fam. This will make us cowboys. Planted a seed over his grave. The seed became a tree. Moses said his father became part of that tree. He grew into the wood, into the bloom. There's this video with Hugh Jackman talking about the nature of God and non-duality and Bhagavad Gita. All this highbrow stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. But he talks a lot about the movie in there and non-duality. It's lost on me. Not duality? Non-duality. What's non-duality? Yeah, well, I don't know because I don't know what he's talking about. Seems like it's all these Eastern influences. Yeah, I still don't know what he's talking about. Like, you don't have that cultural touchstone. Like the Judeo-Christian... I guess, uh, I don't know, philosophy runs through everything. So when you talk about that stuff, it doesn't make any sense. But, I mean, in the movie, it seems... So I don't know, because it seems like that's more in the interview that he's talking about. But in the movie, like the whole tree and everything is... Uh, well, that's from Genesis. That's a, it's a Christian story. Yeah, because uh, Aronofsky loves the Bible. Uh, I think he did. So he did the mother, didn't he? Think of mother. And think that was like Noah. Think of he did Noah fountain. He did the Noah one with Russell Crowe. Yeah, with the giant rock angels. Oh my gosh. Well, anyway, and mother. Yeah, then I should have known going in. I wouldn't care for it. I thought mother was cool. It's not like a great film, but I found it really engaging when like the world goes upside down and the house is like is decaying. Kind of wackadoo movie. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know what's supposed to be in there. Like, it seems like there's motifs that are supposed to be symbolic with a deeper meaning. And that's lost on me. Like, the, it seems like a ring kept popping up. Like, he's losing his wedding ring or tattooing a ring on his finger. Yeah. So, like I said, I think it's a motif, but I don't know what it means. We can talk about interpretations of, uh, uh, well, let, let's do our intro first. No, there's no intro. It's just right in. I think we got this because I offered a couple of options and then you picked it, right? I don't know. I think you offered The Fall, though. We should watch that because... You would like The Fall a lot better than this. I saw some of that when you, like you were watching it or whatever. I like the... Man, I don't know. It just looks zany. The I don't fall, think that's the right word, but... The Fall is the single most cinematic, most fun and, and visually engaging yeah, film I think this, I've ever seen. Like the costumes and stuff in there are striking. Yeah, so I, I think 
I offered that. I said we could watch The Fountain or The Fall, and you chose The Fountain. But I love The Fountain. I think it's a really beautiful film. I had kind of a different beautiful. take. I think I first saw it back in high school, and it's always been something I enjoyed for the, the visual feast it is. I do think it's a gorgeous film. I love the space sequences. I think Hugh and Rachel are really great in it. But like even back then, I didn't 100% connect. And I think I appreciate it a little more now, but it still, like, it still has its faults. I, I still prefer more logic in my films and, and more, I guess, absolutes. And it is very much an ambiguous film, very much in, in the vein of Kubrick. What's your take on it? Obviously, you don't like it. It's not beautiful. I was beautiful about it. There's nothing... It seems, yeah, that stands out to me, like that you wouldn't see in another movie, I guess. I guess there's like a weird floating uh, orb that he's traveling through and he's eating pieces of trees, which again is lost on me. Why is he, what is that significant? Uh, what's confusing too, well, probably have to read through Genesis because there's like the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. So it seems like they're guarding, well, there's the Mayan guy, he's like guarding the tree of life. But then, so what's the other tree? Why are there two trees? And that, that one's dead. Are they both the tree of life? I guess the some of the set design was pretty cool. Like the Mayan guys and stuff. Yeah. I'll tell you who's a cool character was that Inquisitor with the self-flagellation. They should have made a movie about him. But do not worry. I will make sure her servants are waiting for her in hell. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they're dropping people from the ceilings. You can hear them crying out. I really want to talk about like the different interpretations there are, but we'll, we'll oh, start. Fine. Go ahead. Where? I have zero interpretations of other than some dudes eating stuff and giving flowers growing up out of him. So the, the about, basic probably about like holding on or something to when you shouldn't, I don't know. It's probably about letting go. Honestly, I would well, say, yeah, but he doesn't want to let go. That's why he's free and spending all that time in his little lab. Trying to, like, damn, she, why don't you just go be with her? You're not helping the situation. That That's one thing that I found really confusing is after she dies, there's, we start, like, going back again for, like, the third or fourth time to that scene where she asks him to go walk with her, and he does. And I, I still don't really understand the purpose of that sequence it kind of fills out of place because throughout the film as she's getting sicker and he's struggling to find his cure with donovan the conquistador is getting to the new spain and all of this is happening we return several times to that it's the first snow of winter do you want to go for a walk and then each time he's like no i've got to work and then he goes and works but after she's dead it changes what happened and I don't think it's literally changing the past, and I don't think he's misremembering, but it's kind of strange. That That's one sequence that I really dislike. So we got the three timelines, which is probably one of the reasons why I really like the film, because I love framing devices. I love nested stories. I love intercutting. I just think all of that stuff is really cool. It's pretty neat. But anyway, so you got Tomas, Tommy, and Tom are the three versions of the Hugh Jackman character the um, in the 1500s. 
in the 2000s and in the 2500s. 2500s? Yeah, that's the one space Tom is. They're, they're separated by approximately 500 years. Why is he dressed up like an Auschwitz victim? He's got like striped pajamas. He's a and, spaceman. And a bald head. Who knows? There's Queen Isabel and then there's Izzy. And then is there a third Izzy character? Is she the tree? Or I guess she's dead, right? But the queen was like in the bubble with him. But Izzy was in the bubble too. How was she? Yeah. She wasn't like always there either. Anyways. Yeah. Kind of confusing film. So you said what's beautiful about it. Well, I like a lot of the sequences. I found it really striking. I think it's very well directed. In particular, there's a sequence where Tom discovers the seed for how they're going to find the cure. So they go in and they're going to operate on Donovan. The serum that they sequenced wasn't going to work. And so he like goes back out into the pre-op room and then he looks up at the skylight and there's this really cool, it's dollying out from Hugh and then it's dollying into the skylight or maybe it's dollying in on both. I don't remember, but it's just this really gradual movement. And then it's a counterpart movement in the other shot. It just intercut as he stares up at that skylight with the snow and the light hitting it. Reminds him of the tree. Was that supposed to be Shambhala theme? too? Because it was kind of an orange skylight and everything. Yeah, probably. I, I think a lot of the film relies on visual similarities to kind of tie mm. the stories together. It was very orange in that lab too. It seemed so weird to me. Surgical room with a bunch of mood lighting in it. Anyways, that scene I found really striking, just visually and, and emotionally. And then I also loved, you know, the, the sequence with Tom walking down the sidewalk. Oh yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. Because it was all muted. Yeah, the sound design was amazing on that. I quick. found that so impactful. I like when he's crying and tattooing that on. That, that was the most evocative one. That was the third scene. And he's losing it. That's one thing Aronofsky... So Aronofsky did an unofficial, unlicensed commentary because the studio didn't want to do one and so after the fact a couple years later a guy one of his friends said hey why don't you just do a commentary and we'll put it up on youtube and so they did that and he talks about there's not really cinematic depictions of men crying and he like not like that man those are real crocodile tears he would have like women come up to him and be like i've never seen a man cry about love in a movie before it was really cool thanks for making that which i thought is kind of interesting because yeah, I can't even think of an example of, you know, a man crying in cinema. It's not really something that you see. I don't know, the ideology of, of masculinity that we have in cinema. I have on Joker. He had a little tear there. More psychotic <laughs> than distraught. Yeah, but then visually, you don't like the space, the space time line, the space sequences? No. I thought those were so cool. Just the, the backdrop and Shibalba <laughs> and all of that stuff. So Aronofsky didn't want to do CGI in his film. And like even the studio is like, you're not going to be able to make this film without CGI. And they were so right. And like the flowers growing or something with CGI. Yeah, that's minor. <laughs> he found a guy, I think his name's... Why, what's his aversion to using it though? Is it just like a practice in filmmaking or something? I mean, he's not against, look at Noah with the rock angels, look at Black Swan with her transformation. So for this film, he was very inspired by Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. And Kubrick, more as like an effect of the time it was made, but it's not CGI, 
right? You got people in ape suits. You've got sets for the the ending and like the monolith. And then there's this sequence, like travel through a wormhole. It's all done in camera with lights and long exposures, but it's this really trippy visual sequence. And, you know, here we are, what, 50, 60 years after the fact, and it still holds up. And it was that idea that he wanted the effects to hold up so that, you know, here we are 14 years after it was made and it doesn't look bad. Well, you might not like the style, but it hasn't aged poorly, right? Whether or not you agree with the appearance at all is a separate matter. But I would say that the space sequence to an audience's perception is as effective as it was in 2006 and 2007. So I think that was the main reason behind it. But he got this guy, um, I think his name is Pete Parker or something. And he does macro photography, both the microscope sequence when they're working in the lab, and then all of the space backgrounds are macro photography shot by Parker with yeast growing in a time lapse and oil droplets in water and all of these different organic views that are just magnified to the extreme where it takes on an otherworldly dimension. And I just think, I, I think both it's, it's really cool that they did that. And I think it's visually stunning. I, I like, I like how it looks, but like with space odyssey, the ending is super ambiguous. I feel Aronofsky from what I've gathered from the interviews I've, I've seen and like the commentary, like he knows there's ambiguity to it, but he feels like there's a definite answer that you can like suss out. And I think <laughs> I fundamentally disagree with that, but either way, there is ambiguity to the story, right? He doesn't come at the end and say, this is what the story was about. This is what actually happened. Well, what was the ending that makes it ambiguous? Did it end when he was like eating the Elmer's glue from the tree? The end of... Or there was like an explosion of light or something? Something crashing down? Well, the actual end of the film, isn't it when uh, Space Tom gets uh, enters Shibalba? Isn't that the final shot? Oh, wait, no. After Shibalba, it fades to white, and then we have the scene where he plants the the thing above Izzy's grave, right? He plants the seed okay. through the tree. Okay. Was that something else that they mentioned, like planting trees over dead people? Yeah, so when Tom visits Izzy in the hospital, she tells the story about oh, yeah. a Guatemalan like Moises guy named or something. Moises who said, my father isn't dead. If you dug up his grave, he wouldn't be there. We planted a tree and his life force went into the tree and now he flies with the birds and he lives in the grass and he floats on the wind, right? So I think a lot of the film... Well, obviously, it's about death. I believe Aronofsky said that his original inspiration came from this idea of striving to prolong life. Like now we have plastic surgery and, you know, miracle medicines and all of this stuff. We're, we're attempting to preserve youth. And then that relates, obviously, with the fountain of youth or the tree of life or these like mythologies that we have. But he, his original conception of the film 
was he wanted to make what he calls a psychedelic science fiction film. And he wanted to make something in the past because he was fascinated by, you know, the Mayan culture and, and this history. But not like in a Christopher Nolan way. What do you mean? The guy's always doing weird stuff with time. Oh. I don't think so. It's more conventional. It's just cut between them. Yeah. It's more of like a shared narrative between time spaces. Nolan is more about using time as a medium in and of itself, I feel. And this is more just three stories told across time, if that makes sense. It's kind of how I view it. But yeah, so the genesis of the story was this idea of trying to preserve youth, confronting death, how we deal with death. And then he wanted to examine, you know, this ancient culture and he wanted to examine space. And then just logically, as the story developed, they realized, oh, we're going to need, you know, we need this middle ground. I feel like the story of Tommy and Izzy really like grounds the film because without it, like it would, it's already hard to track in my mind, but without the... Tommy and Izzy story, there wouldn't really be, you know, anything to hold on to or or like any connective tissue between the space and, and history. Well, it's the one that makes the most sense, but I don't know that it necessarily means it grounds the other stories because, well, like I said, I don't understand the greater significance if there is any. If it's just supposed to be a psychedelic experience, then I don't see the point of the middle one. And do your funky Mayan queen inquisitor business or your little spaceman. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you my take on, on the meaning of the film. So when I first watched it years ago, I was just reading online in forums or articles or reviews or anything, trying to figure out, you know, what is it supposed to mean? And the interpretation I read at that time was, so there's clearly established in the film, our current time is... Tommy and Izzy and Izzy is dying and she leaves an unfinished book for Tommy to finish. And then Tommy is like, you know, trying to find the fountain of youth, like the drug or the, the chemical sequence that will keep people young and healthy forever. And then the book that Izzy is writing and hands off to Tommy is the tale of the conquistador, right? That that's clearly established with, he, him reading the book about them and intercutting between them. I don't mm-hmm. think there's a question about that. But the first interpretation I read, which never sat right with me, was some people think that the space sequence is Tommy's ending to the book, which logically, I just, it doesn't make sense. Why would he take a book about a Spanish conquistador in Guatemala? finding the tree of life with the Mayans and make a story about a spaceman. Just doesn't make sense. The big middle finger to Izzy because he hates her now. <laughs> she died. The other interpretation, which I feel is closer to Aronofsky's vision, that it's the story written by Izzy and Tommy, which is the story of like their love, right? Interposed in this separate time space. And then you have the story of Izzy and Tommy and this fight to find the cure or the, the fountain of eternal youth. And he he accomplishes it, right? Donovan is healing miraculously. He performs as he does on cognitive tests as he did years ago. But it doesn't come in time to save Izzy. I thought like, like the, it didn't affect the tumor or something. It just improved. 
it didn't it initially, did but at the end it did. When oh. Izzy was dying, the institute owner, that lady, oh, right. she, she came did. in and she, the tumor's gone, but by then it was too late. So I feel like maybe it's a tumor. I'm going to say there's the novel, there's the current timeline where Tommy does find a cure for death. His his sequence, his serum cures aging and disease and makes people immortals. And so Space Tom is actually Tommy after 500 years. And he's literally in his spaceship flying to Shibalba with the tree that he planted over Izzy's grave that is now Izzy, right? Like Moises' oh, father, hey. Izzy is in the tree. She is the tree now. That makes sense. That's why he's so bummed out when... I think, I think the tree like dies right before they reach it. Yeah. Lo he loses his mind. The tree dies... And he ascends out of his spaceship. Is that when he does like the weird uh, yoga pose? Yeah, the lotus pose. And he floats up into Shibalba and then the ray of light comes down and disintegrates him. I think it's ultimately about Tom coming to accept death, right? If we take that interpretation of events, then for 500 years, Tom has fought and refused death. And then at the end, he finally accepts it. You could say he joins Izzy, right? Because now even Izzy's tree is dead and Tommy is consumed by Shibalba and enters the afterlife where he can finally be reunited with Izzy. So that's my interpretation. I think it's about this idea of, of the fountain of youth, but then finally coming to terms and accepting death as a part of life. Okay, there you go. Makes sense. See, what I like better is like if it was like a mundane story that had explored these ideas. I guess kind of like, uh, did we talk about the Sunset Limited? Yeah, we did. That was yeah, on our bottle movie episode. Something like that. It's like real. And the explorer side is. I don't need like some bald guy in the lotus pose floating around space. It doesn't help me. Yeah. So that's kind of my interpretation. And I do feel like it's reasonably close to Aronofsky's view of the story. But I actually don't think the film was made to be logically interpreted like that. Aronofsky said he enjoys the discourse around the film. He likes, you know, the different ways people view it. But I don't think his purpose was, you know, he wanted people to question, but what does this mean? Like, why does he fly a orb spaceship to Shibalba? I, I feel like it's more... You're supposed to think about it, just enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's I would say it's a more experiential film. Like you said, it's it's not so much about the logic, it's visual allegory. It's it's in a way, it's a visual it's visual poetry. Right. Well, that's how mother read to me too. Cause I, I guess there's like significance behind it, but I'm I'm sure most of it was lost on me. It's just yeah. kind of some weird, kind of confusing dream sequence. Kinda of like uh yeah, like Charlie Kaufman. That's why I say there's like, two peas in a pod. I feel like Kaufman is much more cerebral in his films. This is more, I don't know. It, I, I, I would say Aronofsky is less grounded than Kaufman. There, there's kind of like a similarity and they don't care too much about the reality, more about just telling their story. And maybe there's some similarities in like the visual styles that they choose to, to do that with. Or like kind of, I don't know, the surrealism or the absurdity of their films. But 
yeah, I don't feel like the fountain is is made to be a piece of logic. It is very much like 2001 A Space Odyssey, right? For decades, people have discoursed on the purpose or the meaning behind the star child. But Kubrick, if he had a meaning, he purposely chose not to share it with the audience. It's supposed to be this abstract, ambiguous ending where you can bring I, meaning into it, but I don't I think it's there inherently. I want to know what the meaning is. I do too most of the time, <laughs> but I feel like the fountain, even though I still have this desire to like understand it all logically, I enjoy the experience of watching it enough to, you know, I can still enjoy the film. And the same way with Space Odyssey, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm not like 100% sold on the ending. I do think it's a little too out there for me. Is that the one with how? Yeah. But I mean, I, I love the wormhole sequence in A Space Odyssey. It's just <laughs> kind of wormhole. the stuff after that I don't love as much. And the Statue of Liberty in the Sand. Isn't that kind of the apes? <laughs> yeah. Really quickly, going back to like his style and how it's directed and pieced together, I really loved how it was intercut because we're jumping around these three time spaces or the three timelines. But I loved when we would cut from Space Tom or I think it was mostly Space Tom and then we cut to present Tommy. But it's like Space Tom is in Tommy's office, right? And Izzy's saying, hey, it's the first snow. Do you want to go for a walk? But Space Tom is sitting there. It's kind of the same thing with Space Tom flying in his ship and then Queen Isabella appears. Then like also Izzy appears. It's just kind of, I loved that kind of transition that we would see the character in their time and then we change times, but the character is with us. And then like you cut to Izzy and then you cut back and Tom, present Tom is actually in the office. I don't know, just visually I found that really appealing. And then like you said, there is a lot of visual symbolism with trees, with light, with the ring. I mean, I think there is a certain level of logic behind it, but I'm kind of okay with it just being purely visual symbols. I like seeing the ring in the three timelines. And I think if we if we're still going with my interpretation then, you know, it's more of Tom's wedding band and then it's imagined back into this story about them and then he actually literally carries it with him into space. But I don't think you have to have that logic. For me, kind of just the visuals themselves would stand on their own and it acts as just another way to tie together the three different times grant a sen some sense of coherency or, or constancy to the heavily intercut, like, because I feel without it, it would be kind of jumpy and, and kind of like... It'd be jarring when you jump around. Yeah, it'd be more jarring without all of these visual symbols tying us in. Um, I don't know, do you want to talk more about symbolism? I feel like in the, the production designer, he talked a lot in the special features about how they designed the sets to be journeys we're constantly moving through space towards light. In the hospital and in the laboratory, there's these long corridors with bright light at the end. In space, 
we're we're moving towards Shabalba, and Tom is climbing the tree towards the light, and the conquistador he's he's like walking up the pyramid steps. He's walking through that hallway to the fire. Yeah, a lot of it is built around a journey towards light. If we want to impose meaning on that, it would be a journey towards the afterlife, a journey towards death especially given the background as we are in the film that the Mayans viewed a star as their afterworld. And so as you journey towards the light of the star, either literally for space Tom or metaphorically for Tomas or Tommy, as they go towards the light, they're approaching death, right? They're approaching the afterlife. You really don't like this film, do you? You just don't vibe with this stuff? No, not really. Oh my gosh, you got me reminiscing for uh, Midnight in Paris. <laughs> but this is a much better film than Midnight in Paris. I don't know. Just Different scrubs. You grab me. Okay. Yeah. I thought uh, that Izzy character, like, she was weird throughout the whole thing. She's like aloof somehow. Yeah. But I, I really like this, like, historical mythology aspect of, like, the ancient cultures and what they believe. Is that stuff real? Yeah, fiction. I, I, yeah, like the first father and and him giving his life for the creation of the world. All of that is like actual Mayan theology. She wants like Egypt or something where like the guy ejaculates into the Nile or something and makes life. That's an interesting cosmology they could do. I think it would be a very different film. <laughs> <laughs> See, and there's there's another thing where it's like a visual visual symbolism right because we have the story of the first father and the tree growing out of him and then we have Tomas when he gets to the tree of life and drinks the sap the plants grow out of him wait when so like when did he it, wait it was the conquistador wasn't it that ate the the tree sap and had the flowers grow out yeah Tomas but when was that because he was like in like a robe or something wasn't in his armor. He seemed more disheveled. Maybe he always looked like that. It's just that he didn't have a helmet or something. Well, I mean, it's after, you know, he gets beat up by the the mob. He climbs the pyramid and then he almost gets his head cut off. And then there's that scene where, you know, the mine is going to cut him. And then he says, oh, like it's space oh, yeah, maybe he took he it says, off because he, he was like wounded in his side. But I thought he had like armor on before or something. Did he have it when he fought the mine guy? The Guardian? I think he just had his helm. Yeah, that was another sequence that to me is weird, that the space Tom appearing in the, the Mayan pyramid, and that's what stops the the guard from killing him. So I guess one final thing just to wrap up was, along with the avoidance of CGI, is that transformation of Tomas into flowers. They had like a prosthetic body built on top of him that had a bunch of air bladders that would force out these plastic plants. And then they just, like you said, they had to CGI on the actual flower petals because they couldn't get those to look good opening up with the air. But yeah, it's just kind of a cool thing. And then a uh, space Tom as he's floating around in his Lotus pose and flipping, doing backflips through the air. He has like his flowing robe on. Because they did a bunch of tank photography with Hugh Jackman wearing his robes underwater and doing the lotus pose and flipping through. But then they flipping had to... Flipping through? You mean like he's revolving or something? 
yeah like there's a, a part where he's on top of the, where he's like on the tree and then he like stands straight and he does like a backwards flip and soars through the air again it's not i don't think it was like a, a purposeful dislike for cgi it's more the more we can avoid it the more the better it will age the more realistic it will look so like they have hugh jackman like doing his lotus pose underwater to get the rippling cloth but then his face you know becomes distorted because they're filming underwater and so they composite a digital face on top of him where they they took like a mat of like a video outside of the water and, and composited him, his face back on top of his body but just kind of cool behind the scenes i kind of like how much of it is practical and like they built a set for the mayan pyramid and then they just do like a map painting for the rest of the forest around it when we get the really far out shot and then they like built a tree of life and then they, they shot that all on a green screen and then they comp in the macro photography behind it. Well, I don't really have much else to say. And I feel like, yeah, it's fair. It's kind of hard to talk about a film that you don't connect with. Well, I would recommend the film. I think it it's pretty. <laughs> pretty. I, I like the cinematography. I like the visual symbolism. If you do really like a strong logical narrative that's easy to follow it's probably not for you i think there is connective tissue there but i think the focus is more on the psychedelic sci-fi aspect and and like an experiential emotional film than necessarily one focused on a story thank you so much for listening to notes from the silver screen I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it. As always, we'll be back right here in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. On the way to Shambhala.